You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hey, everyone. If you like this podcast, you should check out the full finance journey at realvision.com slash rvpod to get the full view of what Real Vision is all about. A video on-demand platform you can watch anywhere. Our members get daily videos and analysis, plus access to more than 3,000 videos for beginners and experienced investors alike, and live events online. You'll join the most thoughtful community in finance. More than 300,000 people who trust Real Vision to be the anchor to truth in the financial world. To get started, visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code PODCAST10 to get 10% off our essential membership for your first year. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Monday, June 13, 2022. I'm Ash Bennington. Joined today by Jared Dillian, editor of the Daily Dirt Nap, and also later on we'll be joined by Real Vision's own Weston Nakamura for an update from Tokyo on the BOJ and JGB yields. Uh, let's take a quick look at what's happening in markets. Not a good day, to put it mildly. Uh, starting off with Asia, Nikkei down 3% uh, on the day. Eurostox 50 off 2.6%, so down day in both Europe and Asia. Uh, NASDAQ off on the day. Minus 4.68%, S&P 500 off 3 point, uh, looks like nearly 3.9% on the day. Uh, Russell 2000, unfortunately, the big loser of the day here, looks like off 5%. I want to bring in Jared Dillian. Obviously, Jared, lots of market volatility going on. You were talking about uh, the recession trade in your Daily Dirt Nap newsletter. Uh, but I want to read from a tweet uh, sent by you around 10 p.m. last night. I'm genuinely spooked, and I don't spook easily. Jared, tell us, what are you seeing right now as you look out on these markets? Well, this is, this is a terrible day for me. I mean, it's a terrible day in the markets. It's a terrible day personally. Shit is just raining down on me right now. It, is, it has been a bad day, okay? But let's talk about what's going on. There is an incredible amount of stress in short-term rates. An incredible amount of stress. Uh, twos, I mean, I'm looking at bills. One-year bills are up 33 basis points in a day, bill yields. Uh, Two-year notes, half a handle. Like, I haven't, I, usually you don't see moves like this on the upside in the front of the curve, and yields usually you see it on the downside. There's a lot of stress in rates markets. And the problem Jared, is, let me jump that, in and just frame this out for people who may not yeah. be as familiar with fixed income as you are, obviously. Uh, so you're looking at the very short end of the curve. Bills uh, are traded discount on face. Uh, these are very short-term uh, instruments. You're talking about very large moves in terms of percent change in yield, uh, rising fall in price. What does that mean? Why does something like that happen? Well, basically... Fed funds expectations ratcheted up significantly just in the last 24 hours. So uh, I don't know if everybody saw, but there's a Wall Street Journal article, Nick Timoraros. Basically, the Fed leaked that they're going to hike 75 basis points on Wednesday. It's not really a surprise. I'm pretty sure that's what they're going to do. 
If you look at where Fed funds futures are trading, we're pricing in 4% terminal Fed funds. And if you think about this in the context of what the Fed has said in the past, if you go back to the last Fed meeting on their dot plot, the highest dot, the highest dot was 3.5%. And the Fed funds futures are pricing in 4%. So I don't, I really, I don't think the Fed is going to be able to hike to 4%. I think if you could just naively buy these things and if you could withstand the volatility, I think you'd do okay. But it's in, we're in liquidation mode is what's going on. We're in liquidation mode. And let's talk a little bit about the drivers uh, here for this for this uh, perception uh, that the Fed is going to uh, basically continue to uh, normalize from the ultra accommodative monetary policy we've had now since the 2007-2008 regime period. Uh, the driver on this uh, is inflation. We get another brutal print on CPI, 8.6%. Uh, give us a little bit of a sense of what the t- tensions here are, what the dynamics are uh, at the Fed and why this is such a challenging meeting. Yeah, I mean, first of all, I, I want to say I would be willing to bet my reputation that CPI does not go above 9%. In fact, I think the next print is probably going to be lower. They have successfully engineered a recession, okay? And what's going to happen on Wednesday when the Fed hikes 75, the curve is going to massively invert. The long end of the curve should rally, and that will be pricing in a recession. I mean, if you look where mortgage rates are, mortgage rates went up to 5.85% is the average on a 30-year fixed rate mortgage. Like the, the, the economy is going to be slowing down massively. Let's talk a little bit about curve inversion. Uh, I think you're talking about twos, tens, which inverted briefly uh, very early hours of this morning. Uh, then uninverted, I guess, went positive. Uh, spread now, it looks like four basis points on my screen, uh, twos, tens. What is the significance of that number? Uh, and why does it matter to people, particularly people who are in equity markets who don't often think about the different tenors along the yield curve? I mean, basically, the yield curve is a nearly foolproof recession indicator. So if short-term yields are higher than long-term yields, Basically, what it means is is that within that time span, you expect the economy to go in recession and you're pricing in lower yields in the future. That's why it always works. It's worked seven out of seven business cycles. The yield curve inverts, then you get a recession. It inverted for the first time a couple of months ago, then it steepened a little bit. Now it's flat again. It's going, you know, one of the things I said at the macro experience out in San Diego. It was my opinion that not only would the curve flatten, but it would invert massively that you could have two-year yields at 35 to 4% and 10-year yields below 3%. Yeah. By the way, all of this, the perfect sort of context and segue uh, to queue up our conversation with Weston Nakamura, who's been talking about precisely some of these points, particularly from the perspective of the BOJ uh, and how the Bank of Japan has effectively been putting this uh, global uh, yield curve control on, it appears as though we've had some change in that now, Weston. Yeah. Uh, hey, guys. Yeah. So um, basically, as you know, Ash, because you and I have discussed this for some time, um, but back in uh, late January, early February of this year, I made a video on Real Vision YouTube called Why Global Markets Are Addicted to the Bank of Japan. And the entire premise of this video was basically that 
there's basically two things. First of all, people are not paying attention, enough attention to the Bank of Japan. It is the most consequential um, in terms of risk assets. Um, and the reason is because they are the only central bank that is actively, major central bank that's actively easing at a time when global central banks are withdrawing accommodative policies after a decade of providing it all at once, leaving the BOJ to be the only one uh, left doing so, and yield curve control which keeps a lid, a loose one, but a lid nonetheless, on global DM hey, sovereign yield. Talking about yield curve controls, for people yeah. who don't really uh, follow macro the way that you do, let's talk a little bit about why yield curve controls are different uh, from quantitative easing, the different points in the curve where the Bank of Japan is intervening, uh, where the mm -hmm. Fed and other global central banks are not. Sure. So, um, Brian, can you put up chart one, please? Um, so. You know, people who follow me on Twitter, you know, you're very um, familiar with, uh, you know, my putting up a chart of dollar yen versus the 10 year US Treasury yield because they basically move right in tandem. Um, so, this chart, this first chart is just very, very simply, is just the 10 year JGB yield in white, or I'm sorry, in green, uh, the 10 year US Treasury yield in white. And that line uh, that pertains only to that green, the green is uh, the BOJ's upper bound, the 25 basis point, point upper bound. If JGB 10s get to that level, the Bank of Japan steps in and conducts what's called a fixed rate operation in which they um, offer to buy an unlimited amount of 10-year JGBs such that the yield uh, gets capped and they fall back down. And so they did that in February. Uh, if you go to chart two, actually, um, I've actually kind of marked these um, on the same chart. So you can see, you can see whenever that, you know, that uh, green just gets up to that 25 basis point line, um, they conduct a fixed rate operation. They offer to buy an unlimited amount of JGBs and then uh, JGB yields fall. And then t uh, treasury yields fall and boom yields fall. And that's because if you're not getting yield at home, you're going to, you know, you're going to send all this massive amount of Japanese capital overseas, uh, and that caps U.S. Treasury yields and and you know European yields and so on and so forth. Uh, and then that line is when BOJ, the last BOJ meeting in which they basically effectively made fixed deal, uh, fixed rate operations permanent. So there's now a daily bid for unlimited JGBs at uh, at 25 basis points today or earlier uh, or yesterday rather. Uh, they were unable to hold that. Um, and the premise of my video, as I was saying, was that if the Bank of Japan messes up with yield curve control, if they can't hold the line for whatever reason, um, you're going to see a massive spike in global sovereign yields, and, you're, and that's going to that's gonna kill risk assets. And well, here we are. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. One of our, our regular viewers, CG, just pointed out that it looks like Weston is dressed for a funeral. Uh, and another one of our viewers has asked if the funeral is uh, JPY. Uh, let's talk real quick uh, about the dollar-yen pair, what you're seeing there, and what it's signaling. Yep. Uh, so third chart is basically just the same um, as the last, but I just put dollar-yen on top of it. Um, so dollar-yen did hit its millennium you know, high, um, except 
when yields started to pull back and JGBs started to sell off um, during the cash session yesterday, dollar yen actually uh, fell. So the yes. dollar strengthened against everything, um, at basically every other currency pair except for the yen. The yen actually kind of held like was a bit up. And the reason that's happening is because either the Bank of Japan uh, caps yields at 25 basis points and therefore the yen weakens or vice versa. But they can't, you can't do both. And so in this case, when you're seeing the yen uh, finally strengthen or get short covered, what that is, is the markets who are, are betting on Friday's BOJ uh, meeting to for them to make a tweak in their policy to widen out the yield curve control band. Uh, and that's why you see that dynamic happening right now. Yeah. Uh, really quick, Weston, final point. Significance, you've talked about this here before, the global transmission mechanism, this idea that the BOJ by YCC is keeping a lid on rates globally. What's the transmission mechanism uh, for people who are looking uh, at their U.S. equities portfolio trying to make the connection? Um, it's simply that Japan has the largest net international investment position in the world. They, they deploy the most capital overseas. Um, much of it goes into fixed income because Japan is cash hoarding deflationists and very elderly. And so they're in need of yield and they're not getting any in Japan because of BOJ's yield curve control. So uh, that's that's what you know uh, BOJ YCC does. It, it indirectly caps uh, yields globally and therefore leaves everything in sort of a low rate environment, even in a rising rate environment. And so uh, with the removal of the BOJ's yield curve control, that would be much that that's going to have much more of an impact on global um, risk assets than, say, the Fed or the ECB, because those things are well known and more or less priced in. The Bank of Japan, however, lifting rates. Um, that's something that hasn't happened in decades and something that the world is not accustomed to. And that's something that can create trillions of dollars of capital to flow around and reprice things. Weston, very elegantly framed and concisely said, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot, Jared. So, Jared, as Weston points to, lots of moving parts here uh, today. This is obviously a global rate picture uh, that Weston brings up. Any thoughts or anything that you'd like to uh, add on those points in terms of what you're seeing here uh, in U.S. fixed income markets? Well, I want to say that, you know, if, if you go back in history for any downturn, if you're preparing for a downturn, what do you do? Well, you lighten up on stocks and you buy bonds and you buy gold. And that playbook has not worked this time at right. all. It, it is it is not worked at all. Everything is going down, the possible exception of energy, but even energy stocks were down four or five percent today. So there's I mean, that's you know, a lot of the communication I'm getting from people, you know, I get emails from subscribers all the time, and, and I, I must have gotten half a dozen emails like this sucks, everything sucks, this market blows. Like, I mean, every there's like everybody is feeling it. Like, I don't usually there's some person on Twitter that is taking a victory lap. You know, they were in the one thing that went up and it's not happening. Like it's, you know, it's it's hitting everybody. Yeah, I'm looking today. I hear at a WTI chart uh, on the day closing. It looks like flat around 120, uh, but it bounced around earlier in the day. 
yeah, it bounced around a bit, but uh, yeah, oil is still launch. So, yeah, basically launched on the day. Uh, other asset classes, uh, Jared, you bring it uh, up. You mentioned uh, gold. What are you seeing there? Well, I'm seeing the same thing that everybody else is seeing. You know, it's kind of, uh, uh, you know, on Friday, gold was up a lot on the CPI print. Um, you know, everybody shorted gold into the print overnight, and then it ripped up to about 1870, and it completely reversed and gave it all up today. Uh, if you look at a long-term chart- Minus of almost gold, 3%, right? 2.8 some odd percent on yeah. the day down. If you look at a long-term chart of gold, uh, it looks more attractive. It's a big cup and handle. The uptrend's still in place, but you know, and and look, like it, to be fair, gold is still up on the year. You know, it's really like one of the few assets. I mean, it's up like one or two percent, but it's still up on the year. Well, and it's especially up on a relative basis where everything else has lost. Yeah, that yeah, that's the point. Yeah, yeah. So, Jared, how do you frame this? Uh, you were writing about the recession trade, as I mentioned earlier, in Daily Dirt Nap. How do you think about this? How do you process all of this? You mentioned this notion that the historical correlations are breaking down here. Uh, it's just ugly across the board. How do you begin to think about what you do? You ask the question, what works in a recession? So what does work in a recession? And is that where we're headed? Well, the problem, I think one of my problems is just sort of in general, is that I think too far ahead. You know, like I'm several months ahead. So, you know, to, we as of Friday, as of the CPI print, we went into the recession trade, okay? And that was exacerbated today. Uh, in a recession, long-term yields should come down, okay? I think if you bought bond, bonds and just if you could withstand the volatility six months from now, you'd be happy, okay? That's what I think. Um, you know, equities are going to struggle, but at some point, you know, it's interesting. I'm looking at Twitter right now on my other screen. There's a there's a tweet, White House watching stock market closely. Okay. So that's very important because there's two competing interests here. One, we're trying to get rid of infl inflation. The Fed's trying to get rid of inflation. But if there's a threat to financial stability, the Fed will step in just as they have stepped in at every point in history. The the White House and the Fed doesn't want the stock market down 50%. This is a welcome decline in asset prices. They're happy to see this. But if it gets more disorderly, sure, absolutely, they'll pause rate hikes or cut or hike 25 or, you know, stuff like that. Yeah, you know, we've talked about it here on the show before. This the Scylla and Charybdis, they're trying to steer between these two very unappealing alternatives. Uh, this intense inflation we see, eight plus handle on the one hand. I know it's our favorite drinking game. If we say Scylla and Charybdis, you have to drink. Uh, and also this contraction of the economy. We're not in recession yet, not officially according to NBER, but we have seen one quarter of growth contraction. How do they weigh that out? How do you weigh those those the, the balance of terror there between those two extremely unappealing options? Uh, and what implications does that have for markets? You know, I think inflation is going to go down. I really do. There was I, one of the most fascinating things I've read about economics was now that we have the CPI, which is computed by the Bureau of Labor Statistics, but we also have the Google price index and we have something called the MIT billion prices index. Okay. So it, back in the financial crisis, September 15th, the day that Lehman went bankrupt, prices started to come down online within hours, 
within hours of the Lehman bankruptcy, prices started to come down, that deflation was already happening, right? So it's it's my belief that the shock that we've had in the rates markets is going to have ripple effects across the economy. It's going to happen very fast. People, as we speak, are being priced out of mortgages today. It is happening. You know, it almost happened to me. I locked in my rates the day before the payroll report. I got four and a quarter percent on a 10-year arm. That would be five and a quarter percent today. So it's, you know, it's happening. A big move, 100 basis points on a, on a mortgage rates material. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, 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 you know, I would be one of those people at the margin. I probably wouldn't be able to do it. Yeah. Um, so let's talk also places where we're seeing a lot of pain today uh, in crypto. Obviously, it's been a, it's been a, just been a brutal and and ugly uh, period. Uh, Bitcoin now trading at twenty three thousand four hundred and fifty three. Uh, Ethereum at twelve hundred and forty nine. Uh, just some 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 perspective here. Bitcoin on twenty four hour trailing basis off nearly fifteen percent. Seven day basis off over 25%. Ethereum off 15% 24-hour trailing, seven days off 33, just under 33%, call it. Uh, you mentioned uh, on Twitter, Jared, everyone seems to be sick of crypto. You don't want to see it on your screen any longer. Give us the 30-second version of why. No, I mean, every, everybody is sick of crypto. Like, like I, you know, you get to this point, you're so... You're so unhappy. You're so demoralized. I mean, every look, most people own a little bit of crypto. And everybody at this point is, what do they say? They're like, I'm not looking at it. I don't even log into the app. I don't look at it. And I'm just going to pretend it's not there. And yeah. people don't want to hear about it. You know, they, they don't, they don't want to see tweets. They don't want to see videos. They don't want to see these commercials for the exchanges. It's just we are in the revulsion stage where people just hate it. Right. And after the revulsion stage comes a period of neglect where nothing happens, which was the period of 2018 and 19. That right. was the neglect phase where it, Bitcoin was 3,000 and it didn't move and people left it alone. And that was the best time to accumulate a position. So that's what's in the future. Yeah, this so-called crypto winter, something uh, we've experienced before. By the way, fascinating thing for someone who's in the news business who covers both crypto and macro slash capital markets, the fascinating thing about crypto is precisely what you just said. When prices decline in crypto, people don't want to hear about it. When there's chaos in traditional capital markets, people tune in even more intensely. It's a strange function. And I think it's related to precisely the point you made uh, about how people, most people, most individuals, people who aren't in the crypto space, hold relatively small positions in it. When it declines, they get disgusted and they don't want to hear about it. Yeah. I, I will say, I will say that, you know, there have been a couple of times in my career where you got to that revulsion stage with stocks. In 2002 was a pretty good example. You got to that revulsion stage. Nobody wanted to hear about a dot com anything at that point in history. Right. And by, and by the way, and by the way, I was working on Wall Street in those days, as I know you were. Uh, and when we had that dot com winter, uh, to coin something ex post, it didn't mean the building stopped. It didn't mean the development stopped. The infrastructure right. the internet continued to go. I mean, 
we saw this incredible build out. So we're able to do what we're doing right now, talking to each other on opposite sides of the country, remotely via video and broadcasting to the entire world on YouTube, on Twitter, on the Real Vision platform. The work continued, the functionality continued to develop, uh, even though the prices were brutal. Listen, if you bought Amazon stock uh, at its peak in 1999, I believe you were underwater for like seven and a half years. Yeah. And the other thing is, is, is that, you know, with crypto, it's, it, it, there, there are these investment booms and busts. You know what I mean? Like it, it, it was funny because one of the things I was trying to do in my newsletter is I was trying to get a VC to write a piece for my newsletter about web three. And I asked my subscribers, this was like December of last year. I was like, who wants to hear about web three? Who wants to read this? And I got like dozens of email replies. If I ask the same question now, like nobody crickets, nobody, nobody crickets, nobody cares. We're going to take another quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N ads.com. Hey, talking of which, one final point on this. Uh, I hosted a conversation earlier today on Real Vision uh, called Celsius Binance Freezes Ads to Crypto's Woes. This was a conversation uh, with Dan Roberts, Sergio Silva, and Francis Hunt. I wanted to take a look uh, at a short clip from that today. He also pointed to the yes. correlation with equity indices. He's yes. absolutely spot on. Head and shoulders on the, the indice. And the tech a bubble. If we were to have a, a 55% like the COVID equivalents or any of the others, there's still a lot more to come on that. So it's very, very hard to be the friend that gives you bullish news. I'm going to tell you what I see, not what you want to hear. Um, right. But the accumulation points would be 17 to 18. This 15K comes out of this blue head and shoulders there. That would be a, a pretty nasty downturn. Um, there is a bear flag, that target right down there, a little bit less strong on bear flag target. That's down at 12 and a full round trip will take you back to our funnel at 8 to 10K. Jared, he's got the lowest uh, the lowest resistance levels there, uh, support levels, I should say, positioned at 8 to 10,000 on Bitcoin. Yeah, I don't know that I have a strong opinion about that. Um, I mean, look, like anything's possible, but... Um, I would I would certainly be a buyer at ten thousand. Let's put it that way. That would get me off the off the bleachers. So, yeah. I mean, look. The only thing that I have a strong opinion about is that it's interesting to hear people talking about uh, eight to ten thousand, even as a even as a sort of a, a bottom uh, level uh, for potential support. Uh, I should say he also talks about these humiliation points significantly higher uh, at seventeen to eighteen thousand. Uh, interesting. Probably a conversation that's best viewed in its full context to get a sense of uh, what uh, crypto sniper Francis Hunt was talking about uh, in that conversation, but something uh, interesting to put on folks' radar screens. Jared, not surprisingly, as you might imagine, we have lots of questions uh, pouring in. Uh, any final points before we jump to those questions? No, let's go to the questions. Okay, here's one that comes to us from Paul E. from the exchange. This is Real Vision's internal social network. Uh, and the question is, Jared, during your interview with Dave Floyd, uh, talking about discipline, you said sometimes you let even your losers run. If you don't use stops, how do you decide when to sell? Interesting comment today. Well, 
you know, you don't see, here's the thing with stops. Like I sort of have, uh, I'm, I'm opposed to stops because stops have a tendency to get elected uh, when just for random reasons, like there's a flash crash, something happens, your stop gets triggered and then you're stuck. So I don't like to put in hard stops just because I don't have stops. Doesn't mean I don't have discipline, but I do have less discipline than other people. I freely admit that because I like to give trades a time to work because my entry points are not always perfect. You know, if you, if you think that your entry points are perfect, then you can have really, really strong discipline. But if you don't, then you ha you have to give trades time to work. Yeah. Uh, this one comes to us from uh, Goncalgo G, also from the exchange. Jared, weeks ago, you said the sentiment about rate hikes was very high and that at some point there would be political pressure about 401k drawdowns. Do you still have this view uh, or did you turn bearish on stocks again? Uh, also, are rate hikes a good way to fight supply-side scarcity? Boy, this is exactly the point that you were raising before about this balancing act uh, that the Fed has to play right now uh, between the pain of inflation and the pain of seeing 401ks contracting. Uh, how do you think about that? Uh, and, and to his specific point, uh, where are you right now on stocks? Uh, you know, I trimmed a little bit about two weeks ago. You know, I, I cut some stuff. Uh, I'm unfortunately, I'm going to be cutting some more positions tomorrow, uh, not really at ideal levels. And that's going to get me down to a core portfolio of about six or seven stocks that I'm just not going to sell. I'm holding, you know, I'm holding for the next cycle or for 10 years or whatever their long-term holds. So I'm pretty, I'm pretty close to like a core portfolio here in stocks, but it represents, you know, a pretty small percentage of my assets. So you know, I, that's why, you know, this daily briefing, we've spent most of our time talking about the bond market. That's, you know, that's really something that's more interesting, you know. It, so I, I just, you know, I, I really am close to home on stocks right here. Yeah, by the way, speaking of which, a question about the bond market. This comes from Nitrader uh, from the Real Vision web website. Uh, Jared, what are your thoughts on TLT? We should say uh, TLT is the iShares 20 plus year treasury bond ETF. Uh, you know, I uh, here's what I think. I think the Fed's going to go 75 on Wednesday. I think they're going to hike 75 basis points. I think the curve's going to massively invert. I think the long end's going to rally. Um, so that's that's basically it. You know, if you think that we're going into a recession, equilibrium 10-year rates are not three and a half percent. They're two and a half or two and a quarter. You know, that's ultimately where they're going. That's what I believe. Yeah. Um, here's a question for, for Weston, who's not with us, but I just wanted to read it. The question for Weston is WTF question mark. Obviously, lots of people trying to process. Uh, what's happening in Bank of Japan uh, and, and some of the feed-throughs globally. Uh, Jared, I know you've had a miserable day, but it's been a great conversation. You crushed it here today. This is some really great insights uh, hearing the way that you're thinking about this very challenging day in markets uh, across the board. As we come to the conclusion of this conversation, final thoughts, key takeaways amid all this noise that you'd like to leave our audience with. Well, key takeaways is... Uh... You know, I was very spooked last night. As the day progressed, I became a little bit more constructive. I think we're going to get some, I, I think the Fed is going to actually help the market. They're going to, 
hike 75 and that'll help the stock market. But I just want to say, look, you don't hear many financial pundits say this. I was wrong, right? I was dead ass wrong about the bond market. If you go back over my last daily briefings over the last like three or four weeks, you know, I was very bullish on bonds. And, you know, especially from a chart standpoint, you know, the chart setup was beautiful and I just got hosed. So, you know, this is this is a mea culpa for me. You know, I got it wrong and it sucks. But you know what? There's always another trade. There's always another trade. Got to rub dirt on it and get back in the game. It's great to hear people say that, Jared. We really appreciate your candor, your insight. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks. Thanks for watching, everyone. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.